Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. Dada. With the latest WWE edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right. Getting Over is back once again. And we are here to break down everything that happened in the world of WWE over the last week. We are still multiple weeks away from 2024 WWE Royal Rumble. Of course, the first premium live event of the year. But that has not slowed down the company as they are going full force with some big time storylines across SmackDown and Raw. There is an absolute ton to get to on today's show as usual, but I would be remiss if I opened up this episode without a reminder that there is another episode already in our podcast archives waiting for your ear holes. That is the performance enhancing audio known as the 2023 Getting Over Awards, aka The Meaties. Yes, Our year-end award show has been published. It was released on Monday, and it is awaiting your listenership. I don't even know if that's a word, but that is what it is waiting for right now. 23 awards, four brand new awards we're handing out for the first time. We put together quite a show for all of you. The Golden Globes just passed over the weekend. The Emmys are coming up between both of them you can enjoy the meaties. So be sure to listen to that episode as soon as you wrap up today's WWE show. Of course, later this week, we'll have your next NXT and AEW episode, but we want to make sure you do not miss the 2023 Getting Over Awards, aka the meaties. And on that awards note, let me also remind you that Getting Over is up for Best Wrestling Podcast of 2023 according to the Sports Podcast Awards. I would love it if you would please lend us your vote because it is a fan vote and you guys can vote as much as you want. All you need is an incognito browser. So the link is tagged and pinned, I should say, to the top of our Twitter profile at Getting Overcast. Vote for us as many times as you want. We would love to be the best wrestling podcast of 2023. We already know we're your favorite. So make your voice heard. Vote in those awards. We would greatly appreciate it. Speaking of Twitter, don't forget to follow us at that exact same account, at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. It is also where you can send in tweets and DMs with questions or comments for the show. And we have plenty of those that we will be either answering or responding to on today's show. With all of that out of the way, let's get into today's episode As you likely have noticed already, based on the lack of call and response for the meaties earlier, vintage Chris Vanini is not with us today. He's driving home from the college football playoff national championship. What I think is fair to call a disappointing game, even if you're a fan of Michigan and congratulations, go blue. If you are Wolverines won that game, not necessarily the best national championship, not the best capper to a five-month-long season that Vintage and I had to endure in our full-time jobs. Uh, But nevertheless, that's over. He's driving home from Houston back to his home, which is around the Dallas-Fort Worth area, if memory serves. The Silver King on no sleep. No sleep, to quote Cosmo Kramer. So I'm roughing it today. That means this is going to be a little bit of a different episode. We still have the main event, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and the last word. We're going to open up with that new segment 
that you guys have already given us a lot of positive feedback about. But within that segment, we're also going to be touching on some opinions and news-ish items that have been flying around across uh, the IWC over the last week or so. These are topics that all of you wanted us to address, and that's exactly what we're going to do. So before we get into the main event, before we get into the good, the bad, and the ugly, and before we get into the last word, I'm afraid I've got some news. And as I said, this really works as a catch-all segment today, so let's start with a non-news item. But really, it's just this idea that I've seen going around that somehow The Rock returning to WWE is neither special nor important because he's doing it to rehab his image, quote-unquote, coming out of these controversies around Black Adam and the deal he was doing with Oprah trying to raise money uh, for people, I think, affected by disaster in Hawaii. My response who gives a shit? Like, are, are some people out there so sore about WWE having success that it's necessary to nitpick the reason that The Rock has returned for the first time in a decade? It's not like he got a DUI or got arrested for assault or did something like terrible. He had some faux pas, some public relations stumbles out there. He's still a megastar. He raises the rent when he's around. Same thing with people saying that, oh, The Rock, he's back, but he's so corny now. Like, compare that Jinder Mahal segment last week with the stuff he did in the Attitude Era. I can't take him anymore. Well, no shit The Rock isn't doing Attitude Era stuff anymore. He and WWE would get canceled for that shit nowadays. The Attitude Era, I think people forget this, it was over a quarter century ago. Think about when you were in high school and people said, hey, you know that thing that happened a quarter century ago? You're like, wow, that was a long time ago. (laughs) That's the Attitude Era now. I'm sorry that many of us listening to the show are older, you know, mid-age, I hate to even say it about myself, but it's true. Shit that happened then doesn't fly now. Do you really want The Rock to come into WWE talking about Poontang Pie in 2024? Like, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills sometimes when I read some of these fans' takes or accidentally, heaven forbid, click the For You page on my Twitter account, which is an absolutely mind-numbing experience. When you see some of these fan account tweets, not just anti-WWE ones, but anti-AEW ones too. The shit that people say and their opinions, the things that get retweeted thousands of times, it's mind-numbing. I already used the word, but I'm going to say it again. Y'all need to be better. (laughs) Just straight up. Let's move on out of this. Uh, Sports Business Journal's John Orand, he publishes every year a list of sports media predictions. He does it in January, the start of the year. And one of the predictions he made in this year's article was about TV rights for WWE Raw. His prediction was that it would head to Amazon and remain on Monday nights as part of Prime Video. And the reason for that prediction that he explained in this article is the value of the young male demographic. He also states that Raw on FX could work if WWE is not paid enough by other suitors because they could possibly work it into an overall deal with Disney, ESPN, and UFC with the TKO relationship. This is largely what we have been reporting on buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. And we've certainly discussed it on here a couple times, though what John is predicting is flipped. He's incredibly well-sourced, way better than either of us when it comes to sports media and TV rights. This guy knows his shit. So I'm not disagreeing with his prediction because he's making it from a point of education on the topic. 
However, as I've stated before, WWE moving off cable television and going streaming only for its signature show is just something that would be shocking to me if it happened. Thursday night football is the quaternary NFL product, meaning it's fourth in importance behind in whatever order, Sunday night football, Monday night football, and the CBS Fox Sunday games. Raw is the flagship of WWE. It is the primary product that this company offers. And moving it to streaming on Prime Video, I just don't see that happening. I don't believe that Thursday night football has seen a viewership decline moving from NFL Network, which is a cable station that it was on previously, also at different periods of time had relationships with CBS and Fox, and the ratings certainly went down once it moved off network television. But from cable, I don't believe it's seen a drop-off going to Prime Video. In fact, I actually think it's gone up a little bit. But taking Raw off cable and moving it to streaming, one of the reasons why that would hurt is because there's a lot of fans who do flip from Monday Night Football. That becomes not only far less likely, but much more difficult when you go from a cable station to a streamer. And it could further erode viewership even more than it already gets eroded when Raw goes head-to-head with the NFL for four or five months out of the year. The only reason it would make sense for WWE to go to Prime Video would be if Amazon's bid for Raw is far higher than what they are getting with other top offers, be it from USA Network or FX. And it's certainly possible that's the case. If it's that much more and they make that move, ultimately, it'll make sense. But if it's marginal, then I just don't see why WWE would want to go away from cable, especially if there's an opportunity to go to FX, which is something that we've been mentioning on our buymeacoffee.com slash getting over and on this uh, podcast as well for months now. They do really seem to be the leader in FX offers a lot of real interesting shoulder programming where USA Network simply does not. It's literally Law & Order lead-in every single week. No one gives a shit about it. I mean, Law & Order is a weaker lead-in than the Big Bang Theory is for AEW Dynamite on TBS. It's a half-hour comedy. It's a sitcom. Law & Order is an hour-long procedural drama, and people just aren't really watching USA Network for the content anymore. Although that does seem to be changing because there was actually something that came out in the media, I think in December, that USA Network, and maybe this is news to some of you uh, listening who used to be USA Network fans like I was back in the day, but they're going to go back to creating some of those hour-long scripted dramas that made USA Network so popular. Uh, Suits and Mr. Robot, Burn Notice, like many of those shows that you all probably watched back in the day. I know I did. Um, are supposedly coming back. I'm not saying those specific shows, but content like that. Psych was a big show for USA Network. It seems like they're going to get back into producing first-run content. That's pretty exciting. That really doesn't have anything to do with WWE, but as someone who used to watch USA Network shows back in the day, I figured I would mention it. Plus, Chris isn't on the show, so I got a little extra time. Let's not forget. Let's get back to the WWE aspect of it all. WWE has always been ahead of the curve when it comes to media rights and content. WWE Network as a direct-to-consumer product, DTC, that's an example. Other than MLB, there really wasn't anyone doing that at the time. And that was WWE, you will remember, pivoting off, creating a TV channel 
That was originally what they wanted to do. They decided not to. They didn't think the money would be there. And they got way ahead of the industry creating the DTC product. So even if Raw does wind up on Prime Video and it's met with some skepticism, whether by us or the industry or whomever, let's not forget what happened with WWE Network. And WWE was proven to be on the right track there. Nick Khan and the people leading this organization, they're pretty damn smart. They have the pulse of the industry. It might be the same case here if Raw does wind up on Prime Video. But still, if I had to bet, I don't agree with John. I would say they remain on cable for at least one more media rights cycle. That would be my prediction. But like I said, the guy is well-sourced, knows a lot more about the industry than I do. But again, I just wanted to mention that because I did see that it was something that took off. And a lot of people took it to mean like that Amazon is the leader. It was just a guy making a prediction as part of a yearly story, though he's usually right on with a lot of his predictions. I'm not so sure about WWE. Let's move to another topic. Uh, In an interview with Busted Open Radio, Nick Nemeth, the former Dolph Ziggler, he revealed that he actually requested his WWE release months before he was ultimately fired. And that's just like good to know that he was not straight up fired, but rather requested the release, similar to Mustafa Ali. The reason it's better is just because it means that those guys had ideas. Things were percolating in their heads of what might I do if I'm no longer with WWE? What will life outside this company look like for me as a professional? Not everyone gets that opportunity. People that get fired are blindsided. They lose their jobs. They're scrambling to find something. But when it came to Nemeth and certainly Ali, it seems like they both had their ducks in a row and ready to go should the inevitable ultimately come, which in both of their cases it did. Ali, like Nemeth, did request his release. Actually, he did multiple times. He kept being you know, retained. They moved him over to NXT. It looked like he was going to become North American champion. And then they released him. So that was unfortunate. Ziggler, of course, at the time wasn't really being used at all. On that note, it's actually interesting how many of WWE's releases have come around saying they're unlikely to ever wrestle again. Like Rick Boogs, Riddick Moss, Emma, they've all come out and said that recently. And you got to believe that lack of passion and drive was felt backstage, at least to some degree. But if not, and, and I'm not suggesting anyone should be fired or lose their job, but if someone is going to be fired, like if it's an inevitability, right? Better it be people who are not actually invested in the industry than others who badly want those positions. There's only a finite number of jobs, just like there's only a finite number of roster spots in the NFL. Another topic to touch on is WWE apparently making alliances in Japan, first with All Japan, possibly with a women's brand, maybe Stardom. As I see this coming out, I keep thinking that the NXT focus is by far the most likely here. Any main roster deal would benefit the Japanese brands far more than that same deal would benefit WWE, which has more fans worldwide, but also has way more casual fans. The average WWE fan does not know the top five wrestlers in all Japan. Maybe they know Nakajima, like maybe they know one, but they don't know everyone. And even if you said New Japan, maybe they know like three. And that's being generous, right? I count myself, by the way, as someone who is not familiar with All Japan whatsoever. I know, I think, two wrestlers that I've actually seen in the ring perform inside the last 12 months. Like, that's probably it. So if you're going to make a deal with them, it makes far more sense for it to be with NXT, your developmental product, 
where you can lend people to Japan and maybe bring a couple people in for excursions rather than it be main roster talent. The Charlie Dempsey work with AJPW was exceptional. I reviewed that last week. I would love to see more of that in the future. If you take Braun Breaker, throw him over in Japan for 60 days. That would be incredible. Everything he could possibly learn going over there. I'm just not sure, like I said, that all Japan talent in NXT would really do that much. Maybe it would be better for the women's division if some stardom folks came over for excursions. That, I think, could be more beneficial. Stardom's also more popular than all Japan. So that's another reason. Lastly, Eric Bischoff on his podcast this week was apparently asked if Mercedes Monet would be a needle mover for AEW should she sign there. And he flatly said no. This obviously created a bunch of controversy. And a few of you asked me, do you think he's right? Uh, Yeah, I do. He is right. That's not to say she won't create headlines or wrestle great matches or pop ratings for a couple weeks. Mercedes has a nice-sized, immensely outspoken and annoying fan base, and they support her no matter what. But I feel like most of these people already watch AEW, and if not, how serious are they in numbers? Like, let's say there are 50,000 truly dedicated Sasha Banks Mercedes Monet fans, and that's probably being generous. When we're talking about true dedication. So Dynamite goes from 800,000 viewers to 850,000 for a few weeks. Maybe every week she's on. Does that make a difference in their business? Not really, right? I believe that's the point Bischoff was making. There are very few true needle movers in this industry. There's the top tier. You have The Rock. John Cena. Maybe you want to throw in CM Punk just because he's been gone for so long. He does not have the star power of either of them, but he does boost ratings. There's no question about it. Then you have Roman Reigns and let's say like The Undertaker, where when they're not on TV, it's noticeable. Undertaker, I'm talking about back in the day. Uh, When they're not on TV, it's noticeable. But when Roman Reigns returns, that dude pops a freaking rating. More people watch SmackDown on a weekly basis when Roman Reigns is involved in a storyline than when he's not. It's just true. Then you have like Becky Lynch and Seth Rollins. Both popped NXT ratings, but to a much lesser, I would say, third tier degree. And that's really about it. Maybe you could put Sasha Banks in the same camp with Becky Lynch, but let's not forget she's been out of wrestling in terms of American wrestling for over a year at this point. And even though she was always popular, she wasn't Becky Lynch popular. But think about it, like if WWE even was to sign MJF, there would definitely be some AEW fans checking that out for a period of time, but that would die down. Same with Brian Danielson or John Moxley coming back over. If Charlotte Flair or Drew McIntyre or whomever went over to AEW, same thing. There'd be excitement. There'd be attention. One or two weeks, you'd get a noticeable pop. And then unless they were doing something that was truly game-changing or interesting or a really hot storyline, that's going to dissipate over time. Adding someone like Mercedes is not about moving the needle. It's about improving your product. That's where her value lies. They'll get some more eyeballs off the bat, absolutely. But the women's division will get much, much better. And maybe over time, 
that brings more attention and more fans and higher viewership. So you need to look at it in the right context. She's an undoubted value add. She will increase ratings a bit out of curiosity for a few weeks. And then it's just gonna kind of settle. And I don't think that's an unfair take. So we'll see what happens. We'll see if Mercedes does wind up in AEW. Some are speculating it could happen as soon as this week, later this month, whatever the case. This is what I'm going to say. If we get all the way to the Royal Rumble and Mercedes has still not debuted for AEW, to me, that increases the chances that WWE came in at the last minute, bottom of the ninth and signed her and that she shows up back on that show. Maybe it doesn't happen. I'm just saying the closer we get to Royal Rumble, the more likely it feels like she hasn't fully decided where she's going yet. But she also could show up on Wednesday. So what the hell do I know? And you know what? I was about to wrap up this segment. But I'm afraid I've got some bad news. For Vancouver. Because I vividly remember them being a damn good TV crowd in the past. But folks, they were utter shit Friday night for the vast majority of that SmackDown New Year's Revolution show. It was sold out. They barely made noise for two thirds of the show. Now you can say, okay, maybe the crowd wasn't mic'd up well. Maybe, it's possible. Even the LA night pop was muted. I saw some people saying it was loud in the arena. Maybe for certain parts it was, but my eyes don't deceive me. I don't even need to use my ears. I can tell whether a crowd is good on mute. If I'm watching the main hard cam angle and neither see people yelling nor standing and clapping, that tells me all I need to know, especially when you juxtapose that crowd with Portland, which was incredible on Monday night and the early front runner for best crowd of 2024. If you were there, you should be proud of yourself if you're in Portland, because I legitimately cannot remember a show where everything was over to that degree. DIY, over. Ivar, over. Ludwig Kaiser, over. Jinder Mahal, over. The women's tag team match, way over from the opening bell. Legitimately impressive crowd Monday. Portland, you deserve your props. Vancouver, be better. And lastly, Brett Charles Malam at Brett underscore Malam. He wrote in, for me, New Year's Revolution hit better than day one. Curious what you think. I think both had their highs and lows. Like I just said, the Vancouver crowd made parts of SmackDown weaker than they should have been. But top to bottom, it was one of the more enjoyable episodes of SmackDown that we've gotten in a long time. And certainly, Roman Reigns being back involved in a meaningful storyline matters. All right, folks, so we've already touched on a number of topics on this edition of Getting Over, but your three major segments are still ahead. Let's not waste any more time. Let's go ahead and break down everything that happened across SmackDown and Raw in WWE this week. And we'll start, as we always do, by sliding into the main event. This is the main event. So this is going to be a two-part main event, one for SmackDown and one for Raw. SmackDown opened with highlights of The Rock's return from Raw, followed by Roman Reigns and Paul Heyman exiting a vehicle and laughing off a question about the head of the table comment. Heyman paced backstage with freshly dyed and gelled hair, responding to The Rock's comments. Paul said, you can't sit at the head of the table if you're not invited to a dinner of relevancy. He also said The Rock is not invited. Heyman said the only way to go viral in 2024 are to date Taylor Swift or call out Roman Reigns, which was a great line. He brought up Cody Rhodes finishing the story and admitted that CM Punk was the OG Paul Heyman guy, but said he, Paul, upgraded from friend to advocate to special counsel and wise man, and that no one could beat Reigns. 
It has been so long since we've heard Heyman on point like this, probably since the summer, but he was right back to like goat level promo ability. As we mentioned last week, there is no hiding Cody and his finishing the story stuff, which would be buried if it was not the plan for WrestleMania still. I love the way he responded to Punk mentioning him a couple weeks ago. He didn't act as if it didn't happen. And Heyman being completely dismissive of someone the stature of The Rock is exactly how it should be played, given Reigns isn't just a champion, but a three-year-long reigning champion. Paul Heyman, right here. That was a good one, yeah. Randy Orton fought LA Knight and AJ Styles in a triple threat number one contendership match. This was the main event of SmackDown. Nick Aldis was ringside watching, and initially it seemed like there was no reason for that. Orton and Knight had new gear. Randy backdropped both guys onto the announce table twice for Knight. Styles reversed the second attempt. Orton then hit a draping DDT on Styles. Knight stopped an RKO attempt. He later came back with a stereo snap power slam, only for Knight to catch him with the BFT. Styles grabbed the referee's arm to stop a three count. Then he hit a perfect springboard 450 with Knight getting busted open hard way on the landing. Orton then countered the phenomenal forearm midair into an RKO. Fantastic spot. Only for Knight to pull the referee out of the ring for a false finish. Great camera work to hide Knight ringside here. With the referee out, the bloodline entered and destroyed all three guys with Reigns talking shit to Aldis before powerbombing Styles. That's new. I don't really remember Roman Reigns doing a powerbomb except for like the shield days. Then he hit Knight with a Superman punch and a spear before doing the Samoan spike spear combo with Solo Sokoa on Orton. So Aldis ringside, he's furious. He grabs Heyman and off mic with the camera right in their faces, told Paul that when Roman is done celebrating to let him know it'll be a fatal four-way match at the Royal Rumble. I'm remembering now that I actually cut that audio. Congratulations. Now why? Because he's just earned himself a fatal four-way match with all three of these guys at the Royal Rumble. The death stare from Paul Heyman there was fantastic. And Aldis remains incredible in this general manager role who just doesn't really want to take shit from Heyman or Reigns. Now, I can tell you all that Chris probably hated that because the crowd didn't get to hear it and you know his opinion on that matter. But I loved it specifically because Reigns was gloating in the ring unaware of what happened, and Heyman is getting this devastating news, and we're left with this massive cliffhanger of us, the viewer, knowing something that Roman, this dominant champion, does not. That played into the confrontation a couple weeks ago between Reigns and Aldis, and it gave us the match that I had proposed, which for me, as a Royal Rumble attendee coming up in a few weeks, I don't know if you can tell that I'm excited about that, it's far better than Reigns-Orton one-on-one. Credit to the cameraman for the execution getting that. Roman having this authority figure that will actually stand up to him, it is so refreshing. The match, by the way, was real nice bell to bell. Multiple this is awesome chance, excellent false finishes, especially the second one. Parts of it were slow. And when the average age of guys in the match is over 43, that's understandable. Adding reins to the mix and giving everyone more rest time will likely lead to a absolute banger fatal four-way at the Royal Rumble. Also, I do get to say, I believe I had that. What was notable here is that it felt like a return to the Thunderdome era, wreck everyone and leave version of Roman Reigns. First time in a long time, he was presented as a badass who wants to get his hands dirty and fight, 
instead of just having his minions do all the work for him. And that's a huge positive because the guy who is indifferent to everything going on around him and just randomly wrestles matches when he has to, that guy's been boring. That's what Royal Rumble and WrestleMania season does. It gets Reigns engaged again and the product is so much better when that happens. By the way, match, it was going to be four stars or higher, no contest, finish, some of the slowness, 3.75 stars, B+. Totally worth watching. Now, when I was taking my notes Friday night, I put down that WWE should have shown us the result of Heyman informing Reigns. And I figured that could have happened either as the show was going off the air or maybe in a post-show segment. And I was kind of disappointed that they didn't give us that. And then I woke up Saturday morning, I checked Twitter, and boom, there it was with both of them in gorilla position. One man can't beat me. Wise man, I told you, one man can't beat me. Nobody can beat me. Just like you said, nobody can beat me. Um, I know that my tribal chief, and Nick Aldis knows that too, which is why Nick Aldis just made the title match at the Royal Rumble a fatal four-way. I'm sorry. <laughs> they all want to know. You all want to know. Wise man. Yes, my tribal chief. Fix this. Yes, my tribal chief. Obviously, there was some dead air there, but not everything translates to audio. Reigns was huffing and puffing, grimacing his face. You can definitely find that on WWE social media, but that's exactly what I wanted them to do. And I'm so glad that they didn't ask us to suspend disbelief that Heyman might go a week without telling Reigns or that Roman would not otherwise learn about it through social media or backstage because we know he watches the product as part of his character. That would have been ridiculous. The problem with this, of course, is that a limited number of people saw it. You listening now might have even missed it, and it's four days after it happened. Hopefully they show it on SmackDown at the top of the show this coming Friday or something like that, because this is important, obviously, to the storyline. Something to remember, and I'll try to mention it again in a few weeks on our Royal Rumble Ultimate Preview. If this match winds up main eventing that show, that should telegraph to us as viewers that The Rock is coming out to end the event. Similar to last year where the Sami Zayn segment actually ended the Rumble after Roman Reigns title match. That is how they could quickly build to Elimination Chamber next month, and it would maximize The Rock's star power by getting him on the second biggest show of the year. If that match does not main event, then obviously I would expect us not to get The Rock at the Royal Rumble. Maybe he shows up the following night on Raw, which I believe is also in Tampa. Though again, if you have The Rock, it makes sense to put him on the Rumble not raw, but hey, I don't know. We're going to be, by the time we get there, we're going to be at the end of the NFL playoffs. So it should be an unopposed show. Maybe they do save it for raw and try to pop a rating. Just something to keep an eye on. That's all. So let's move over to the main event segment of raw. Drew McIntyre opened the show in the ring, admitting to costing himself the Seth Rollins world title match and saying he actually might be holding himself back as others have been saying and maybe he needs to step away from WWE. Then he turned it, putting the blame on Damian Priest for not being smarter and cashing in on a weakened McIntyre after the match was over. Then he turned it to CM Punk, saying maybe what he needs to do is not just leave for 90 days, but nine years, 
so people would scream for him just when he enters a ring. That brought out Punk immediately, pointing out they're in Roddy Piper country, because heaven forbid they be somewhere where Roddy Piper or Bret Hart existed, and CM Punk not point that out. He said all Drew has done since Punk has been back is talk. Then he did the Shawn Michaels relaxation pose on the top rope. McIntyre sarcastically remarked that Punk has actually made it a month, and there's bets between the boys in the back on how long he'll actually last in WWE. He said he didn't care about Punk shit-talking once he left WWE. He cares about how he's affected his career with his failed leadership while in WWE. McIntyre called Punk a self-serving demon, saying he, Drew, took the leadership role that Punk used to speak about but never actually held, but nevertheless vacated when he left WWE. Then Drew mocked Punk with the same HBK move on the top rope. Punk said he's called himself plenty of things, like a savior, and he made a straight-edge society reference. He also pointed out how McIntyre followed Punk's lead by leaving WWE and coming back bigger, and Punk doesn't mind following in the lead that McIntyre created in returning to the company. Punk said he's not a demon, but when he gets pushed, he's Satan himself, and if McIntyre saw that side of him, then he's the one who caused it. He repeated that he's not there to make friends, but to win the Royal Rumble and main event WrestleMania. McIntyre countered that he stepped up during the pandemic and would exercise the demon of Punk during the Royal Rumble and get back to the main event of Mania, where he'll win the title, not for the fans this time, but for himself. Punk said the only person who can stop him is himself, and he's gotten out of his own way, meaning neither McIntyre, Seth Rollins, nor even Cody Rhodes could stop him. Then he promised to throw McIntyre out last, and he dropped the mic and left. Woo boy, this is how business is done, folks. So much was said here, but it was all executed perfectly. As always, the best promos are those that feature a level of truth or reality. The more, the better. This one had plenty of it. Okay, McIntyre's issue with Punk for leadership, kind of thin, but it was irrelevant because the way they used it was just as a jumping off point for what they actually wanted to tell from a storyline perspective. It was easily one of the best promos, probably the best confrontation segment of McIntyre's career. The fact that Drew was out there going line for line with Punk, and one could argue he won this segment, tells you all you need to know. Punk was also excellent, though. He turned it around on McIntyre for leaving like he did. Though, if we're talking reality, both of them were technically fired. But what I loved most was Punk showing confidence and restating his goals right into McIntyre's face. All this did for me was add fuel to my fire, and I've been sharing this take for weeks. McIntyre should be going into WrestleMania as champion with Sami Zayn beating him for the title on that show. They didn't pull the trigger, and as always, we won't know whether that was the right decision until we see how McIntyre's storyline wraps up. But this was one of those moments where you just sit back and you dig your heels into your belief that they should have done it that way. It does seem like we should be getting a McIntyre punk match, maybe at Elimination Chamber, I guess. Drew losing that on top of everything else, though, that would really not instill much confidence in him going forward. Unless McIntyre is actually leaving WWE once this contract ends, and that's supposedly sometime in March or April. And by the way, it would be a huge shame given the way he's booked right now. Even with all these defeats, unless he is leaving, then having him lose to Punk after losing all these title matches, what exactly do you do with this guy? We have seen WWE put others over on their way out. I never understand it, but there's just a respect level, I guess, for guys who are willing to do business. 
I still maintain that McIntyre is better in WWE than anywhere else. And I'm just trying to think of how this plays out. According to multiple reports, he still has not re-signed. That does not mean those reports are correct, but that's the reporting right now. March is two months away. Let's make believe that's the end of the contract. WrestleMania is the month after that. It's possible McIntyre lets the contract lapse, takes some time off, re-signs with WWE after. It's possible he signs with AEW. It's possible he re-signs before the contract expires. All of these things are out there, but it's just kind of wild to me that he's doing the best work that he's done in years, and this is being purposefully booked. He's not getting over on his own. He's getting over because Paul Avec, Triple H, and WWE Creative are booking him this way. He's doing this awesome work, and like he's not under contract, again, according to reports, past what, 75 days, maybe 90 at most? Like That to me is a little bit odd, but this was an excellent segment, a great opener to this show, Couple more notes before we move on a little bit. First, expert use by Punk of a puffy jacket while standing in the ring with a guy who's like three times his size from a musculature standpoint. Second, the pop that Punk got for his entrance was tremendous. As I said earlier, the crowd was great all night. It was insanely hot for him. Third, McIntyre, and we've said this before, he looks and sounds 100% better and more believable without the sword, not being labeled the Scottish warrior, not wearing the kilt. The guy we saw Monday night, that is a legitimate main eventer in every sense of the word. Now, the other part of what happened on Raw involves Seth Rollins, of course. He is the world heavyweight champion after all. He got a massive reaction at the end of hour two, saying he's never before taken a world championship into WrestleMania. He put himself over for taking the new title from nothing to the top of the industry and doing it the way he promised as a workhorse champion. Rollins asked who he'd fight, fans chanted CM Punk, and Rollins said in his dreams. Suddenly, Jinder Mahal interrupted, and Wade Barrett made me cackle with a yes on commentary when his music hit. Mahal said he got more over in five minutes last week than Rollins has in five years. He brought up the kayfabe off-screen temper tantrum at Survivor Series. Then he said Rollins was overlooking and disrespecting him as a challenger. Seth admitted that everyone has been overlooking Jinder on purpose. Rollins dared him to swing. Then he turned his back like a dumb baby face, got attacked. He escaped with the Coloss, hit a super kick, only for Jinder to avoid the stomp. I mean, look, did Paul Levesque just take Jinder Mahal from the sideline and in two weeks of extended mic time, quickly build him into a world title challenger where you're like, you're not surprised he's getting the match? Realize I said challenger, not contender, because he's not a contender. So cool that... Rather than just have last week exist in a vacuum, they actually built on it and are going to do a one-off that I know I didn't expect, and I have to guess none of you did it either. There's no legitimate reason why I should want to see this match. And yet, I do. It should be no longer than eight to ten minutes when it happens, but credit to Jinder for consecutive weeks of strong mic work, bringing himself back to a level where he is at least somewhat believable as a temporary mid-carder. I'm glad they're running this next week and getting it out of the way. They're not saving it for the Royal Rumble or making it into a big thing. There's a couple other items here though. First, Rollins, credit to him. Beautiful jacket and pants that were easily like $5,000 combined. His best look maybe this entire run with this gimmick. Second, now that I'm thinking back on it, I wonder if Rollins' comment about never bringing the title into WrestleMania 
is meant to be some foreshadowing. Like it alludes to him losing the title before the show. Obviously, Mahal is not beating Rollins. But what if this is the entree to like Damian Priest cashing in money in the bank? Again, I doubt it, but it's interesting. Otherwise, why would you say that at this particular moment? So let's put a pin in it right there. Real interesting stuff in the main storyline segments across SmackDown and Raw, but we still have an absolute ton to discuss from both of those shows. And we're going to do it as we always do in the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I'm sorry, Miss Rosie Perez, I call a spade a spade. It just is what it is. But you can't give credit to anything dude says. Same dude to give you ice and you own some... Jordan. It's time to wake up the dead. You sound a little naive in the articles that I read. Let's start with Cody Rhodes, Shinsuke Nakamura in a street fight. There was a really sweet anime style match card graphic for this. Instead of just the one with the cutout photos, we tweeted it Monday night if you missed it. Cody reiterated backstage their feud should already be over. When Shinsuke attacked from behind, they were quickly separated with Adam Pearce hysterically losing his shit and making it a street fight off camera. And of course, we got an excellent extended promo package video before the match began. Kendo sticks were used early. Cody hit a disaster kick and pulled out a table. Shin grabbed nunchucks. They wound up in the timekeepers area where Rhodes dodged a misattempt with Nakamura saturating the timekeeper's entire face. It was a ridiculously awesome spot. So Cody turns around. He goes to get help for the dude. That led to a chair shot and the tide turning in the match. But what's really interesting about this is the timekeeper is actually a somewhat distant cousin of Cody. Apparently, he's related to like Typhoon or something like that. Wild that that's the case and we didn't even know it. Wild that in this era of WWE, they're naming the guy. His name was Berkeley. They actually mentioned it. And the guy got involved, took the mist. It was just great. But I digress. Nakamura put Rhodes through a table, flying with double knees. He brought out a second table before hitting a sliding German suplex and jumping knee. Cody countered Kinshasa with a crescent kick and hit pedigree plus Cody cutter. Nakamura countered Crossroads, but Cody dodged Kinshasa, throwing Shinsuke through a propped up table in the corner and hitting Crossroads for the win. 25-minute banger of a main event. Cody looked strong in the finish. He needed to. And Shinsuke had some sequences. I got to tell you, made him look five years younger. It was excellent, even if the winner was obvious the entire time. 3.75 stars, B+, and an obvious good. WWE, though, they have got to figure out a way for Shinsuke to get into some feuds that he can win. Because this heel character is too good to be this unsuccessful. Yes, He ran through Alpha Academy. Yes, he beat Ricochet, but he's kind of stuck on Raw right now because he is not challenging for the title again. He already lost that. He can't win the mid-card title. It's held by a dominant heel in Gunther. He's the type of guy who I think would thrive on SmackDown around the United States Championship. They just got to figure out something that he can do where he can win and be dominant and have those wins matter beyond him just having an incredible character. Don't get me wrong. It's the best Shinsuke has ever been on the main roster. It's his best character in his entire WWE tenure, including NXT. But they also still have to make him matter. He's relevant, but he doesn't win. He needs to start winning. I don't know how they're going to do it, but they need to do it. Becky Lynch backstage admitted that losing to Nia Jax obviously sucks, but unlike last time she got punched by her, 
Nothing got broken. She picked herself right back up and she declared for the Royal Rumble with an aim of winning it just like she did five years ago. Becky took that to mean that Nia is either getting weaker or she's getting stronger. And since neither got ended by the other in the match, it might just be the beginning of their feud. For me, and I've said this before, one of the toughest things in professional wrestling is cutting a promo and rebuilding yourself after a significant loss, especially if you can do it without diminishing the opponent or making any excuses. That is exactly what Becky did here. Good work, and this is why she is the best female promo of all time. I have no doubt that we're gonna get Becky and Nia again on the road to WrestleMania, likely after Lynch becomes the number one contender. Jax later came out for an in-ring interview with Michael Cole. She was bothered with the insinuation that her win over Lynch was shocking. Just as she was going on about there being no woman who can beat her, obviously, Rhea Ripley interrupted. She got a legitimately massive baby face pop. Rhea said she's above Becky, obviously shot across the bow. That'll get referenced again later when they feud. And Nia getting that win doesn't mean that she's above her, being Rhea. Plus, Ripley wanted Jax to make sure she kept her name out of her mouth if she does win the Royal Rumble. Jax reminded that she flattened Ripley, who said she's scared to fight her one-on-one, and Nia also promised to choose Rhea if she does win the Rumble. Using Cole to help Jax on the mic, immensely smart, and the confrontation with Ripley was definitely good. It's odd that Ripley won't be defending the title at Royal Rumble when she really does need title defenses, but it seems clear that this is going to set the stage for them to go one-on-one at Elimination Chamber, as we speculated last week. That should undoubtedly be the booking. Rhea can get a big moment in Australia without beating a true title contender. You know they're going to cheer for her anyway, so you might as well put her in a spot where she is the babyface in the match, as opposed to putting her against, I'll just say like Becky Lynch or Liv Morgan or another babyface who would then get booed in Australia. You don't want to do that. That's smart, and I'm going to tell you this. The stadium might implode with the pop that she's going to get in Perth, especially if she does some big strength moves with Nia Jax. That could be really cool. Tommaso Ciampa fought Finn Balor. Ciampa got to deliver a live walking to the ring promo through gorilla position. He said it was a must-win match and DIY's New Year's resolution was to win the tag team titles. Kevin Dunn is gone for a week and we're getting walk and talk unscripted promos with Ciampa. This was so simple, yet so much more interesting than the canned stuff that we have gotten for years. Champa countered Slingblade with a pump knee and hit Project Champa. Balor came back with Slingblade and kicked the rope as Champa crossed, but Johnny Gargano grabbed Balor's foot during a vertical suplex over the top rope, with Champa countering midair, falling on top of him for the upset victory. So it was a solid match. DIY got a surprisingly strong reaction, but Gargano was late on the foothold and commentary completely rushed the transition out of the match. They didn't sell that as a significant upset or anything. Not only is Champa over Balor a definite upset, but Champa defeating one half of the tag team champions is a big deal. That should be noted. It should be made into an issue on commentary. Champa and Gargano should be celebrating that. Instead, they just like cut away from it almost like it was AEW and one of those unforced errors they do where they have a nice match result and they just go on to the next deal. I'm going to give this a light good because it was good and would have been a solid good if the match finished without a botch and if commentary sold it correctly, but it's also not bad because nothing was really wrong here. 
I don't know what it is. Maybe there was a timing issue. I was really frustrated about the way this ended when the vast majority of it, starting with the walk and talk promo, was so immensely strong. R-Truth narrated a video package that it's almost impossible to explain. He starts with saying that he told the doctor upon his birth that he'd be in Judgment Day and have a great career. Then he was like CGI inserted into all of Judgment Day's big moments. He was put on the VHS cover of the Judgment Day in your house in place of The Undertaker. He said he liked working with Tom and Nick Mysterio and their motto Judgment Day now is live, laugh, love. And folks, like recounting it, I'm doing such a shit job because how the hell am I gonna describe this to you? But I absolutely lost my shit and was close to real tears while watching this. JD McDonough followed. He went off in their smoke-filled clubhouse. Damian Priest loved it. They watched it, by the way, on that little tube TV that Truth had brought in weeks ago. Rhea Ripley said they needed to end the Truth stuff. Priest promised he would take care of it when the time comes, but you could tell he was enjoying it. Ripley then brought up DIY, but Priest countered that McIntyre and Jax are bigger problems. It remained contentious between them, but they agreed McDonough had to take care of The Miz in a match later. I cannot stress to you guys how great the R-Truth segment came off. We may need, and some of you tweeted this at me, we may need to create a new category in next year's meetings just to praise it. This might wind up being the segment of the entire year. One of the legitimate funniest things I can remember seeing on a wrestling show in a long time and a Hall of Fame package worthy moment to add to Truth's Real. You will see this and hear about this many times over the rest of his career, and beyond. Dominic Mysterio completely broke watching it. Priest did as well, but I think Priest was in character. What followed continued to tell the Judgment Day story and also addressed all their pressing problems, which was smart. I understand that our truth is not for everyone, and I will say, and I've said this on the podcast before, there are many times where they do our truth comedy, and I just like shrug, or it's like nothing to me. A lot of the 24-7 stuff, one week it would be great, the other week it would be terrible. This was all time, and obviously it was good. I have to give it a grade as well. The Miz fought McDonough in the match I just mentioned. R-Truth pulled up before the bell and obviously distracted JD throughout, mostly inadvertent. Action was equal. McDonough got a lot of run. He got a rope break on a figure four leg lock, but got drop kicked through the ropes with Miz countering into the skull crushing finale back inside for the win. The rest in Judgment Day were furious in the clubhouse, obviously, with McDonough losing again and Truth somewhat factoring in. This was straight up good from start to finish. Exactly what you want a match like this to be. Plenty of fun for the crowd. They got some good time. McDonough sold his ass off. JD is an excellent seller and he is totally comfortable in his own skin after a rough start on the main roster. There's gonna be an awesome truth non-title match against the champions and also DIY against Dom and JD both next week. So we should see some continued storyline movement one way or another. It is kind of interesting that Judgment Day is no longer in what I would call the main event of the men's division. But don't forget, for anyone complaining about that, this is what we wanted. They absolutely dominated it in the fall. Raw would start with Judgment Day. It would end with Judgment Day. They'd be littered throughout the entire episode. And people said, we're tired of it. And what did we say on this podcast? We said, Once they get out of Survivor Series or maybe out of 2023, that should dissipate and change. And guess what? It's dissipating and it's changing 
and Raw has been better for it. That's not to say Judgment Day was bad. It was just immensely repetitive. They're injecting our truth He's putting some fun into it. Eventually, they'll excommunicate him, not just out of the group because he's not technically in the group, but out of the storyline. They'll get more serious again, and that's how they'll get on their road to WrestleMania. We've discussed a lot of Raw, so let's move over to SmackDown for a bit. Kevin Owens fought Santos Escobar in the finals of, again, what they're calling the United States Championship Tournament, but it was actually United States Championship number one contendership tournament. Escobar entered with Angel and Umberto, who are officially back on the main roster, and have officially lost their last names again for some reason. Like, they were Angel and Umberto on Raw. They went to NXT and became Angel Garza and Umberto Creo, which is what their name should be. Now they're back on the main roster, and they're Angel and Umberto. Like, what are we doing? Vince McMahon's gone. Give them their last names back. Then Logan Paul entered and joined commentary. At the bell, LWO attacked Angel and Umberto, immediately taking them out to even the sides. Owens dominated early and hit an avalanche fisherman's buster, plus an apron cannonball. Escobar got knees up on a flying senton, hit a hurricane rana off the ropes before a surprisingly bad for him frog splash. Fans were all over Logan on commentary during this. KO then caught Santos on the ropes for an avalanche fireman's carry senton. Escobar countered a pop-up powerbomb with a hurricane rana, but KO caught him with the pop-up powerbomb coming back, then stopped him running with a kick and a stunner to advance. Logan grabbed the mic after, talked a bunch of shit, but Owens just hit him with the cast and he stood tall. Uh, Logan was selling that backstage with an ice pack when Austin Theory and Grayson Waller got his back to the trainer. Cameron Grimes came up laughing at them and got shoved. I just thought it was nice to see Grimes involved in something. This was a strong match, bell to bell, 3.75 stars B+, some nice sequences, but enough inconsistency to keep it from being excellent. It was nice to see both guys break out like some moves that are on the periphery of what they normally do in WWE. And Owens was the obvious winner given the Paul trash talking over the last month. Logan was solid talking throughout on commentary. He is a legitimately good salesman, as we've said before. And injecting Grimes into this makes me think Grimes probably has a singles match. KO saves him. They do a tag team match. Maybe Logan comes in and costs them that. And that kind of ramps up the feud in the final week or two until the Royal Rumble. Overall, successful, but it was also exactly what we expected. This was good. The WWE Women's Championship match was held on SmackDown. EO Sky against Mi Chim. The Good Brothers entered with Mi Chin repping the OC, but obviously Styles was not there. Mi Chin hit some nice knee strikes, but struggled in strength spots early in the match. But then, suddenly, everything turned around. She had an awesome split-legged codebreaker of EO off the middle rope. EO came back with an apron German suplex and a pinpoint springboard missile dropkick. Mi Chin got knees up on over the moonsault and hit a dragon suplex. She also countered an Io Huracarana attempt with an avalanche styles clash for a rope break. Io dodged a tope suicida with Michin flying out of the ring and just landing flat on her face. So then Io added a meteora into the barricade, another in the corner inside the ring, and she hit over the moonsault to retain the title. I gotta tell you, this was a PLE quality match in terms of effort and booking. It was way, way better then the crowd responds to it. A bit clunky early, granted, with some of those strength struggles that Meechin had, but holy shit, man, the list of moves I just laid out there in a women's TV match with someone in Meechin who's never on TV. Since when does WWE let all that go down? This felt immensely fresh, and this is what I always talk about with the women getting time, and Meechin now comes out of this legitimized. She is now a believable contender and should be used on TV frequently 
even if it's just to take the fall for others. You need Bailey to get a win. Put her with Meechin. Give them 12 minutes. You have a totally legitimate match now. I was particularly happy that they got so much leeway to really show out. I just wish the crowd response was better. I usually don't grade matches that when they're on TV, but they're not notable in terms of like 375 or higher. But I just want to say this was like 3.25 stars. It was a B match, but it was damn good. And if you missed it, you really should go back and watch it. And like I said, good. Damage Control celebrated the win with EO backstage. Bailey said that she sees greatness in all of them, but they need gold. Bailey and Dakota Kai reiterated the plan when Bianca Belair showed up congratulating EO before claiming she'll be entering and winning the Royal Rumble. Belair promised to challenge EO when she wins. EO then told Dakota that Bailey should take care of Bianca if she was going to be the leader of Damage Control. Not only was the storytelling aspect on point here with the facial expressions of Damage Control and all that, but Bianca acknowledging that she needs to win the Rumble to fight EO again, that was refreshing. I'm immensely curious to see what they do with the women on SmackDown because you gotta believe Charlotte Flair, maybe versus Belair, maybe a triple threat was the plan. Maybe Jade Cargill was somehow involved with one of them if the other was in a singles title match. But this is definitely a situation where WWE is pivoting and it seems like EO is not gonna be defending the title at Royal Rumble. So just gonna be really interesting to see what they do and how they book it, and also to eventually learn what the prior plan was here. But this was good again. Women's Tag Team Championship was on Raw. Caden Carter and Katana Chance against Chelsea Green and Piper Niven. The rest of the women's division, the tag team division, I should say, watched backstage. Chance took Green off Carter's shoulders while on the top turnbuckle with a ridiculous super huracarana. Chelsea got knees up on a flip over splash and hit the Rough Rider, correctly called by Michael Cole this time, for a delayed count. The heels combined for the codebreaker sent on for a broken fall. Piper took down Caden with a corner Uranagi, but Katana saved her, literally pulling her legs and pulling her out of the ring. Chelsea fell down while this happened, and she ate a Vader bomb from Piper instead of Caden taking it. Niven then ate a flying codebreaker with the champions combining for Kegstan to retain the titles. Do you guys believe now? Like, I have to assume some of you out there have thought, Silver King, STFU about the KCs already. Well, this was one of the best women's tag team matches in a long ass time. The KCs have multiple finishers. They use a ton of tag team moves, insane chemistry, and credit to Chelsea and Piper for showing out too. This was Green's best match in her WWE career. I mean that, like NXT, main roster, all of it. Best match of her career. And it was a blast from start to finish. The crowd was into it from bell to bell. And I understand sometimes when you start a women's tag team match or a match involving women that don't get a lot of screen time and fans aren't totally into it, the Portland crowd loved the shit out of this. It absolutely rocked. And undoubtedly, this was good. Congratulations to me. Apropos of nothing, I'm starting to believe that WWE could actually benefit from a one-hour streaming show for the women. As long as it did not affect actual women's match and segment TV time across the major shows, I think it could work. You have, between the number of women thriving in NXT and the many names on the main roster who are just not used on a weekly basis, think about it, like Raw and SmackDown this week, they did feature a nice assortment of women, but it was not the entire roster featuring like we had seen 
on a weekly basis at the end of 2023. We're talking about, hey, in this one week, 27 women were used on TV. That hasn't been the case at the start of 2024, but between all of those women, NXT, Raw, SmackDown, you could easily put together a 45 to 60 minute show for Peacock that featured like three matches and a couple of storylines. Think about like Indy Hartwell, Alba Fire, Tatum Paxley, Zelina Vega, Candice LeRae, Zoe Stark. I mean, that's a full show right there. None of them wrestled this week. It would have to be probably booked along the lines of 205 Live with storylines, but I'm telling you it could play. It, it might even get enough attention where they could get a TV deal for it if it was one hour. It's just something they need to consider. There's so many women on this roster that I'm not saying they're not being used, but they're not being used consistently. And with the men, it's so fewer and further between that being the case. Like you can point out a Cedric Alexander, right? Or you can point out an Ashanti the Adonis or Cameron Grimes. But even then they get on TV occasionally. Like when's the last time Indy Hartwell had a singles match? When's the last time Alba Fire or Isla Dawn had a match? They've been healthy. They've been ready and active, ready to go. They're not used. So why not make a one-hour show and put a bunch of legitimate women's matches on there with storylines? Again, the key is it does not take away from the TV time for the women on Raw, SmackDown, and NXT. But they have so much talent that could be utilized, and I have to believe they could simply throw it into a SmackDown taping or even a NXT taping and make it work. Anyway, I digress. Let's keep going. Jay Uso backstage said it's his New Year's resolution to win his first singles title. He way overdid the yeet references to a ridiculous degree. Bronson Reed approached throwing some barbs and saying his goal was the same thing. So clearly they're going to fight. I'm going to give this a light bad only because it was the weakest segment across both shows this week. Jay does not need to be the yeet master making new yeet resolutions and whatever other dumb shit he said in this promo. His natural babyface promo style is fine the way it is. Let yeet stand on its own as a punctuation, like LA Knight when he does. You don't have LA Knight out there calling himself the yeah man. You know what I mean? Like maybe use yeet once for fun if you want to work it into your promo and then use it at the end to punctuate your segment. That's it. But this shit was so littered with yeet. I'm not saying no yeet. I'm just saying less yeet. So yeah, it's a light bad for that reason. Yeet. Kofi Kingston against Ludwig Kaiser. The crowd was hot for Kofi, who had a trust fall outside. They brawled at ringside for a while, with Kaiser preventing Kingston from breaking the count as the match ended in a double countout. Funny for me, was Kofi sliding into the ring like 15 seconds after the bell loudly rang, somehow thinking he could get back in and get the win or something like that. So Kingston decides, you know what? I'm not done. Hits a tope suicida on Kaiser, who in turn gouged his eyes over the announce table. So Kofi backdropped him over the announce table only to get the wheels of a desk chair thrown right in his effing face. The dude took an insane bump with that. It was an awesome sell, like he was knocked out cold. Kaiser then draped him over the steel steps where his like head was hanging off of them. And he evaded officials and ran around the ring to drop kick Kofi's head in an absolutely brutal and awesome spot. Kaiser later backstage screamed to Jackie Redmond that it was Kingston's fault. He's the only member of Imperium left saying that he took his head because of what Kofi did to Giovanni Vinci. You'll remember he got the concussion last week. Folks, not only was this good, 
It was great, superb even. Such smart booking to create a storyline out of the Vinci concussion without it involving Vinci being concussed. Like this is exactly what they would do in the territory days. Not only was this superb, it got some shit percolating in Silver King's head. So Xavier Woods is out injured. Now Kofi was just taken out in a major way. Stay with me. Imperium is a trio. So is New Day. I know we all want Gunther in an intercontinental title match at WrestleMania. And we just mentioned Jay Uso. I've heard Brock Lesnar. There's a lot of options out there. But could you imagine Imperium versus Woods and Kingston needing to find a partner on that show or even doing it at Elimination Chamber and the Big E intro hits? Holy shit. I don't want to get ahead of myself. I guess I already did. This may just be to give Kofi some time off, get him a pop when he returns in the Royal Rumble. WWE does that every year. They knock people out. They return them three weeks later in the Rumble. They get a pop. But it pieces together so well. Shit, I don't want to get my hopes up. Regardless of that, this rocked. They got the fans going with the double countout, then piled onto the hatred with Kaiser being an absolute piece of crap. We've talked before about WWE pushing him solo. He has a lot of momentum backstage. It is clear how much Triple H believes in him individually after Monday night. This guy comes across like a Bond villain. He's on fire. Gunther returns next week. Real good shit coming out of this. This is such good shit. I didn't even plan to use that drop. That's how good that shit was. Bobby Lashley and the Street Profits, still unnamed, hit the ring all dapper in suits getting face cheers. Lashley said 2023 was the toughest year of his career because he put in the work but didn't get the results he wanted. He put over the Profits who said they're all focused on championship gold and they called out Judgment Day. Then Lashley declared for the Royal Rumble. Suddenly, the lights went out. Karrion Cross walked out on a spotlit stage with Scarlet. Now a brunette. Gonna look good, but she's got me saying, hey now! And Paul Ellering. Then Authors of Pain returned, attacking the Prophets from behind with a super collider, and Cross took out Lashley with that complicated new finisher he debuted months ago called the Final Prayer. It was muted at first, the crowd reaction, but there were legitimately loud boos by the time it was over. So Cross's finisher, let's start there. It's doing too much. He does an entire pump handle, just to get the person over his shoulder. That is completely unnecessary. Just put the person on their shoulder, pick them up, that's it. Then you do the rest of the move, which is like an F5 version of a DDT. Perfect, good finisher, the latter part, nice and tight. You don't need the opening part. The heels looked really badass, all standing together at the end, but it was a bit of an odd sight with three huge guys all lumbering around together. Generally, you want some variety in a faction, at least from a visual perspective. And here again, we had Lashley and the Prophets still somehow without a name and BFAB not with them after all those multiple backstage teases. I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. It was something that happened. I'm gonna go with a provisional good only because it's all still in gestation and I don't know what is going to come from this Carrion Cross faction. It debuted. The good news is they have turned Bobby Lashley and the Street Profits babyface. The fans wanted to cheer for them. They didn't buy them as heels. And now they've brought in a heel faction for them to feud with. Makes all the sense in the world. But I cannot understand why they are struggling to create momentum with Lashley 
and the prophets. I mean, I do understand. It's because we're not learning anything new about them when they're in the ring. There's no name. The motivation is to win titles. Everyone's motivation is to win titles. Montez Ford, who's the most charismatic of the trio, speaks the least out of all three guys. So it's good that they're faces again. It's good that Cross and this new faction debuted. I do believe this is the best chance for Cross to get over in his entire WWE run, NXT and main roster. That's why it's provisional. We'll find out more next week. I will note, even though I just criticized them for not having BFAB out there and really not playing into that that they've been teasing, they did give us a social media exclusive with Bobby and the Prophets, and she did show up. Again, I'm pretty sure you missed it. I'll play that real quick. So that's how we start in 2024, huh? Hey, I saw what happened out there, and I just, I just wanted to come check on y'all. So how many while you come waste your time with a joke? That's what it seems like a joke. Y'all ain't no joke. Y'all are champions, multi-champions. It was a cheap attack. Go get them back. Oh, we gonna get them back. First round's on them. Now it's our turn. I mean, that's better than most of the things we've gotten with them. They showed personality. They were depressed. You can't see it because it's just audio, but Ford and Dawkins are sitting on a couch, head in their hands. B-Fab's the one coming in showing strength. Like there's something here. This needs to be on TV. You need us to buy this group. So that's part of the disappointment. I just wanted to play that and kind of show you that, hey, they can do something here. They're just not giving it to us. Hopefully that changes this coming week. Again, that's the reason all of this is provisional. Butch and a partner to be announced uh, were scheduled to fight pretty deadly. Tyler Bate debuted on the main roster as Butch's partner. He didn't seem to get much response and production didn't even show the fans on his entrance. Really tough to blame them. Bate hasn't done much of anything since moving to the US. Bate got the featured spot in the middle of the match. He did create a swell of momentum from the crowd doing his helicopter. They also hit a combined rebound lariat German suplex. Ultimately, the faces hit a tandem. Tyler Driver 97 for the win and they got some nice applause. This gets a good, because it was a solid match bell to bell and a well-intentioned debut for Bate. In other words, the match flow and structure was exactly what it needed to be for someone debuting. The crowd only cared so much though. And again, you can't blame them. The biggest flaw was putting it immediately after the women's match. While both of them were strong, the women's match better, as I mentioned. They featured people the fans don't yet care about in Meechin, Tyler Bate, and they're still learning to like Pretty Deadly again. It is immensely cool to see British Strong Style on SmackDown. This continues to strengthen the tag team division on the blue brand and really across the entire roster. But as mentioned, they still have a lot of stuff to work out when it comes to Butch, Bate, what they're going to do, who's going to show up. Is it going to be Sheamus? Could it be someone else? Are they going to be a group, just a team? A lot of stuff still up in the air. On Raw, we had Otis against Ivar. This is Monday Night Meat. Oh, we got two big meaty men bumping me tonight. This was built with a quick pre-taped backstage segment of Otis getting Akira Tozawa's back during a confrontation about the prior Ivar challenge in which Ivar squashed Tozawa. Fans briefly chanted meat at the bell. Otis caught Ivar midair on a springboard clothesline, transitioning that into a slam. Early big meaty moment of the year right there. Ivar then took him out of the corner with a sit-down powerbomb, hitting a cartwheel, a spinning heel kick, and the Doom Salt, which is now its official name, that's fantastic, for the win. Tazawa got an Ivar's face after the bell, 
but got shoved out of the ring as you would expect. Here's the take. <laughs> Big meaty man slapping me. <laughs> I mean, there was a lot of beef out there. There's a lot of beef out here. These guys were like, what? Two meat planets fighting each other. Where else can you see two beef planets like this colliding? Beef planets like that. Beef planets. I messed that up. But what else could this be but good? It was basically perfect for a match between two guys like that. I wonder if they maybe have Chad Gable save Alpha Academy down the road and take down Ivar as a way to build him back up against big guys to get him ready for Gunther. But I mean, this was a load of fun. It gets, I think, I'm trying to think, how many slabs of beef should this get? I mean, it was so meaty. I'm going to give it four slabs of beef. It was a little bit too short. To get five, you really need to be like one of the most notable matches of the year. But four slabs of beef, clearly they reinforce the ring pose. <laughs> reinforce the ring pose. The beef's going to be flying tonight, gentlemen. And you know what? I need meat like this every week. I need some meat. Yeah. Ashanti the Adonis entered Nick Aldis's office on SmackDown, saying he feels lost, not knowing his place on the show. But he doesn't want pity, just an opportunity. Aldis said he believes in him and has a few ideas for him to consider. Holy shit, Ashanti got a speaking role on SmackDown. Maybe even a storyline. Let me quickly throw out a provisional good for that. I like that he's getting time. He's solid. Is he great? No. Uh, but maybe there's something here, okay? I still want to get Cedric Alexander on television. I'd love to see Cedric Alexander in the Royal Rumble this year. But let's see if these guys can get any momentum. Alexander showed up a couple weeks ago. Haven't seen him since. Ashante this week. We'll see We'll see if we see him next week. It's all up in the air right now. All right, folks. That was the good, the bad, and the ugly. So we have one segment left on today's show. And that is the last word. So DJ, take the needle and just drop it on the record. What? We gon' have a Poppin' in a second That's why we always save the best cut last To make you scratch and mix for it Like fresh cut grass So with Chris not here, I decided to hit a couple Last words this week Some less conversational and more single take topics I just thought that would be appropriate First from Milwaukee Mic Drop at M. Batchelor Whatever happened to William Regal being free and clear of AEW Is he back with WWE? He is back with WWE I believe he's vice president of talent development or something like that. I, I We actually broke um, his new title when he was rehired by WWE on Twitter a year ago at this point. His no TV clause or whatever that he agreed to with Tony Khan and AEW, it just recently expired. So technically he can now be on TV whenever. I'm just not sure that he's needed. Like we did see him in the Charlie Dempsey social media promo ahead of the All Japan match, but there are general managers on both shows. So unless you're going to make him a manager of a wrestler, or you're going to make him the GM of NXT, which Shawn Michaels is pretty much in that role, I don't really see the necessity. It would actually be interesting for him, like, you want him to work with Butch and Tyler Bate and help them get over? That would work, as long as they split from Sheamus. But that's really the only spot that I can see for Regal right now. Nick Flynn at nflynn underscore 17, he wrote in, so I saw on Busted Open Radio that Bully Ray is throwing out the possibility of Rock beating Roman at Elimination Chamber and then both of them losing to Cody at WrestleMania 40. Ignoring the Chamber booking, I can't ignore that. We're gonna have to talk about that. He said, what do you and Vintage think of the percentage chance of Rock, Cody, Roman at WrestleMania main event happening? 20 and 30 had triple threat main events. Could 40 also? Cody and Roman could help carry the Rock through a longer match. Roman having the excuse of being too focused on being someone coming for his place at the head of the table. He would lose there. And Cody gets to claim beating two of the best ever to have done it 
while finishing his story. Let me address uh, the middle part of your question before I get to the end of it. What is the percent chance of a Rock, Cody, Roman triple threat at WrestleMania? Zero point zero. Zero point zero, Mr. Blutarski. Now to answer your other question. What do I think of the overall idea presented by Bully Ray? I think Bubba's a shit booker. That's what I think. I mean, look, no offense to him, but the idea of The Rock being the person to end Roman Reigns' three-year streak, it's straight up idiotic. You don't have Reigns go with the title this long for a 51-year-old part-timer to beat him for the strap. Not even Vince McMahon would book that shit. Cody Rhodes' story used to be overcoming obstacles to win the WWE title that his father could not. Now his story is overcoming Roman Reigns to win the WWE title that his father could not. There is not a single person in the entire company who should beat Roman for the title other than Cody. Period. Full stop. End of conversation. That's it. Now, do you have him do that in a triple threat? Hell no. Why? Because when Reigns finally loses, it needs to be absolute and it needs to be impactful. It should not be happenstance with someone else taking the fall. And it should not come about in a way that protects Roman at all. He needs to be defeated, flatly defeated. Beyond all of that, I highly doubt The Rock is coming back to have two matches. He's not taking three months to run a full-fledged WrestleMania storyline. And on top of that, he has the United Football League, which is starting up this spring, so he doesn't even have the time. If WWE wants to keep the triple threat deal going, fine. Do it with the World Heavyweight Championship. Take it off Rollins and have it be McIntyre, Zayn, and someone else in a triple threat. Or run Rollins, Punk, and McIntyre, which is possible, I suppose, based on Monday night's booking. But The Rock beating Reigns and doing that triple threat? Fuck no. You cannot book that. Absolutely not. Block at zero. And I know, Nick, that's not your idea. It was bullies, but I'm just saying, like, no, <laughs> that cannot happen. All right, folks, this was a loaded edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, as it always is. On the way out, let me hit you with some reminders I did not drop to you at the start of the show. First, that the Getting Over Wrestling podcast is all about Defy. So please stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. Go back to being the mark for the Silver King Adam Silverstein, Vintage Chris Vanini, and the entirety of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. Head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify leave some five-star ratings on Apple, take a little extra time, leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well. For $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official getting overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up, you get exclusive audio, the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling, instant reactions to the major television shows, as well as exclusive news posts. Many of the items that we talked about at the top of this show, we have been covering for weeks, in some cases months, in those exclusive news posts over at buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at getting overcast for episode drops, news analysis highlights, all of that good stuff. It's also where you can tweet and DM us questions and comments for the show. You can also email us, by the way, gettingoverpod at gmail.com. And allow me to remind you once more that Getting Over is up for the Sports Podcast Awards Best Wrestling Podcast. The link is pinned to the top 
of our Twitter profile. Open an incognito window. You can vote as many times as you want, but I sure hope that you think we're such a great podcast that you want to help us win our first award. It would be fantastic. We would greatly appreciate it. Again, you can find it pinned to the top of our Twitter profile at Getting Overcast. Don't miss the 2023 Getting Over Awards, a.k.a. The Meaties, which are waiting for you right now in the podcast archive, probably the episode right underneath this one. And don't forget, we will be back on Thursday with our next NXT and AEW show. Vintage Chris Manini will be back next week talking WWE. Thank you all for listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. It is officially time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.